we have him on every now and zen. We'll talk with Lore Michaels, the fantasy baseball zen master, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 28th. It's show number 46 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tuesday Tout show for you. We'll be talking with Lore Michaels, the Fantasy Baseball Zen Master, about fantasy trading, bounce-back players, Ken Griffey Jr.'s first hit and Willie McCovey's last, some buyers and sellers, facts and flukes, and much more. We'll also have the regular commentaries from our expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Red Sox third base prospect Raphael Devers. He's just 18. Don't you feel old? In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at using the Casimir and Cueto trades to find playing time opportunities in Oakland and Cincinnati. And in our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Danny Duffy, Joe Ross, and JT Rail Muto. It's another big Tuesday tout show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The trade wires are really burning now. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, our feature expert interview with fantasy baseball Zen master Lore Michaels. Lore, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, thank you very much, Patrick. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, likewise, I'm sure. Uh, Lore, how are your fantasy teams doing in your experts leagues? Uh, I, I, I guess I would categorize this as a very tough year. Uh, I, at one time on my labor team, I had Marcelo Suna and uh, Josh Harrison and Martin Prado and Patrick Corbin and Drayson, Jason Grilly and Andrew Suzak all kind of go, you know, crumple like a house of cards. Uh, so I traded for Jason Grilly too, which adds insult to injury. You know, I needed a closer. But, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have much of a chance to win there, but at least I've, I've I've traded around and, and and I have a roster going on. I've did pretty well with fab pickups there, and I sort of categorized for the most part this year as Irvin Santana kind of. He's going to come up a lot because I like Irv, but uh, he kind of typifies my year. I, I I picked him in in my town my tout wars team. I drafted him on my Stratomatic team. I drafted him on my score sheet team. Uh, I think I also got him on my XFL team, maybe even and. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and I got him on all those teams, obviously, before he was suspended for 80 games. So it's just he sort of created this, this you know, black hole vacuum, whatever you want to call it, vortex, and everybody else has just kind of got sucked in after him. Did you get him in the NFL draft? No, in, in the late, in no, the NFL draft. <laughs> Probably should have. <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> Uh, I know you've been active in the trade markets, even despite your uh, struggles in the in labor and, but also in tout. And you've you you really stay active, trying to improve your team, even in an off year. I get neither of my teams is going to win, but I, I have some degree of pride. And you know, I, I've, I we we were discussing this uh, during the. Uh, yearly ubiquitous XFL rule discussion, which is probably just about as crazy as every other league's were 
I don't know. They, those kind of discussions kind of tend to drive me crazy about rules and how to make the league better or whatever. But um, to me, you know, people talk about what incentive is there if there's no money, if there's no this or that. To me, incentive is not finishing last. I don't want to finish last. I don't like it, you know. I want to do the best I can. I want to finish the best I can with the players that I've got. Um, I, I, I don't know if that's hubris or just pride or if that's the same thing, but but that's that. I, I want to do the best I can. So, and if that means trading and dropping players or doing silly, questionable things, I'll do it. You know, and something I've always said to people who who ask me, why do you keep trying when you're obviously out of the running for the money you're not going to get in my American League only league, uh, finishing higher outside the money means you get a better minor league draft pick in the subsequent year. There are a few actual benefits, but for me, the main benefit of keeping going and trying hard is I want to have the practice for when it does matter. I want to be able to get myself from 11th to 10th or 10th to 9th because one of these days I'm going to be in second trying for first and I'd like to have some experience in how to do that. You know, that's a very, very good point. And uh, I, I, I tell you the truth, I never even considered that aspect of it. And that, that's a really valid point. But I also think, too, if the bottom teams dial it in and say forget about it, in a sense you're kind of giving – the top team or two teams uh, a little bit of a better chance. Um, I mean, there might be, usually at least this time of year, there's three or four teams that have a chance to to do something, sometimes more, but rarely less. So I think by not, by not logically trying to at least impact the free agent pool to the best of your ability, uh, logically that, you know, normally if, if, um, Oh well, what's his name? Chesler Cuthbert comes up. He's going to be somebody that all the teams will covet. If you're the last place team and you have a chance to pick him up, I think it twists the the the, the balance of things by not by just letting it go and 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 letting somebody else take that player. I I, I think there's some, for lack of the, my, the over word used word I use anyway, Zen. It, it upsets the Zen to me, and I don't like that. Or at least I'd prefer not to actively encourage that. I agree with you, and, and there are lots of ways that that can happen. I, I, I play in most, both of my leagues are fab leagues, and so people say, well, it's a fab bidding thing. It's not like last guy gets first pick or anything like that. But if you're sitting there with, you know, out of your, we play a $260 fab budget in, in my, one of my leagues, and if we have guys who sit there at the end of the year with, or halfway through the year with, you know, 220 unspent dollars and a big, huge lead in fab, and they don't bid on the new guy who comes into the league, your buyer and Buxton's and guys like that. And they say it doesn't matter, but you're right. It matters because maybe he sneaks on up to the next guy who's in fourth place and makes a huge difference in the race. Yeah, I, and he, exactly. I mean, it, it, it obviously depends on the situation. If you're in, in third place, everybody is active. You're, you know, you're, you, there is the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it aspect of running a team where if everybody is active and everybody's producing and you're getting at bats and you're getting innings, I could, you know, uh, I can totally see passing on on fab stuff. But in most leagues, everybody's got some kind of a hole they can fill. Everybody's got to. If not, then then it's 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 a very shallow league, and there's probably somebody in the free agent pool you could pick up without even you know 
on waivers without even spending any fab money. It's certainly not. A, I'm not. I'm not advocating that even if you don't need a guy who's in the free agent pool, that you should acquire him just because somebody else will get him. If you don't, if that's what happens legitimately, then I'm fine with that. It's when teams check out because they're far down the standings, and it turns out to have an impact farther up the standings. I mean, I'm in both my leagues this year where the distance from first to sixth is within a couple of good weeks or one good player. And if that's the case, you sure don't want the sixth or fifth place team backing into a good player solely because the people below them couldn't be bothered. Exactly. And there's also, I think, a variable or a consideration of, 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 of playing the fab game to a degree can be is, is the in-season version of sort of a price enforcement where you're at least making people pay a premium for a premium prospect, number one. Number two... If you do have a team that's in good shape and there is a guy like Buxton that comes up, there's always the possibility you can, you can think to yourself, all right, if, if I drop Kevin Kiermeyer and pick up Buxton and put him in that spot and I add him to Leonis Martin, can I turn those two guys over into one be- even better player? So there's a lot of ways to go, you know, skin the old cat, as they say. And, uh, yeah, I think you just have to stay open to it. And all these things do... Uh, I, uh, I think contribute to what you were alluding to very in the beginning, where this is, you know, this is how I play things out at the end. Here, what do I have to consider? What angles are out there? What variables can I do to, to twist uh, things to my best advantage? And I, d- I don't understand really how points games work or head to head because I don't play them. I do play uh, pretty much exclusively uh, the the uh, category based formats and. It's it's something that takes some practice and some experience to know how to move and manipulate those categories by putting players off your roster onto other rosters, for instance, or by taking taking players off other rosters and putting them on yours and affecting the race, not just between you and the guy you're trading with, but all the other guys that you're chasing. Exactly, exactly. You're being uh, quite active, I notice, in the daily game. Uh, how successful are you at that, and uh, what do you like about it? all right I, I i actually you know still have a, a, a well, I've, I've done all right with it uh i play five times a week actually i play a couple times tout wars has our official game that we uh spot we play with with FanDuel, so i play that on tuesdays and uh against the world in fact i think you get to play that one too it's kind of fun and with everybody gets a chance to double their uh two dollar investment and say they beat us which is how much fun could that be yeah and then I play the challenge game or the daily game that we do on Friday. And then I do uh, the USA Today fantasy score game uh, every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I've, I've been playing about five times a week. And like, you know, I'm, I'm going to write this week about it. What I, I seem to have an okay time picking pitchers. I can I can do that. It's maybe that's something I've always been good at assembling pitching staffs in my roto teams too. But I was the only guy on Saturday in in, in the 30 team. USA Today Master Ball Challenge, I was the only guy who picked Cole Hamels, and I was a little surprised. I had to think like 40% of the league picked Jake Arriata, and because Arriata had been hot, but if you look, the Cubs are terrible against left-handed starters. They're the worst team in the league as far as strikeouts are concerned. They had like a 229 batting average against lefties, a 285 on-base percentage, and the highest strikeout rate in the league against left-handers. So I just thought, I'm going Hamels. You know, he strikes guys out, and he's facing guys that can't hit them. So, so I was kind of surprised. So I could do that stuff okay, but, boy, I just 
trying to pick between Evan Gaddis and, and, and Stephen Vogt or amongst uh, Gaddis and Vogt and, 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 and Andrew Susak, I just, it just kills me. Did you win the Cole Hamels Day? I did. I came in first. Yeah. I also had uh, Ian Kennedy, who I picked under the same circumstances. He was pitching at home against a team that can't do anything against right-handers. So I think I got 46 pitching points alone. That's, that's usually enough to finish in the top, but I made a couple of other reasonable picks. Yeah, it's kind of fun, that's for sure. Uh, in, the, in the baseball season so far, Lore, what do you think is the most surprising or interesting thing that has happened so far this year? Well, I think the uh, the the, the in, influx of rookie pitchers is is ridiculous. I I don't mean that in a bad way. I, it's just crazy. Um, I actually wrote for the USA Today uh, about a month ago, and and on and, and how you can probably trust rookie pitchers again. And my part of what I found out was at this point in the season, or at least at that point, just before the All Star break. 2015, there had been 93 rookie pitchers had made their debut in the major leagues, and since 2000, the most over the course of an entire season that had been promoted was 125. So you extrapolate that. I think I extrapolated out that there, but at this rate, there should be. It was a little more than the halfway point, maybe 167 rookie pitchers, which blows the. It beats the old record by, or at least the the high watermark in the last 15 years by 40. And I have to think that's got to be a record anyway. I can't imagine earlier than 2000 more than that. But it's amazing to me that guys like Taylor Youngman and and, and Mike Bolsinger and Andrew Heaney, Carlos Rondon, Chris Heston, all these guys are just flourishing. Uh, and and I mean, this is really different. This is you could never trust. You know, you could never trust rookie pitchers before, could you? I think part of it is the environment. It's just easier for pitchers in general. And I would like to look at the how the rookie pitchers are doing, um, ERA, ERA and WHIP wise by comparison to the more established pitchers, like we, we have to keep in mind that a pitcher throwing a 350 ERA, which used to be quite good, is now pretty ordinary, given the fact that the umpires will call a strike on anything that's you know within 15 feet of the plate and anywhere from ankles to nose uh, in some cases. So it, it's just easier for pitchers to do well. And I wonder, are these rookie pitchers doing well by the current standards or just by what we kind of expect from rookie pitchers? I, I think they're doing well by current standards, but I think there's been such a shift in, in pushing and promoting young players. They spend less time in the minors honing their craft, and I don't mean this as a slam. It's, they just have less time to learn the strike zone, number one. Number two, strikeouts are by hitters. Suddenly it's not, uh, it's not unacceptable to strike out 150 times each If you can hit 25 homers and knock in 80 runs and bat 275, that that's that's acceptable, and so I think I think to a large degree that factors in where it's just young pitchers, but they're facing, uh, shall we say, anxious or or uh, hyperactive hitters who don't just aren't as experienced, and they want to jump on a pitch, so they get out more. They they might deliver home runs more, but they also get out more, and I, I think there's some kind of I'm not sure if I, how. Clearly, I'm describing this, but there must be some equation out there to look at rookie pitchers versus rookie hitters and how many, you know, that confluence of more strikeouts and young hitters, if there, there, there is something to that. Well, certainly we know strikeout rates are rising fairly rapidly over the last few years, uh, a combination, I think, of the aggressive uh, you know, three-run homer approach, uh, but I don't think Earl Weaver would recognize this kind of baseball, frankly, but that the will, as you said, that there's a 
organizational or a sport-wide willingness for guys to strike out that didn't used to be there, plus the umpires uh, calling the strikes more liberally, has really changed the game. And do you think that it's going to mean that we're going to see more rookie pitchers year in and year out, or is this kind of an outlier year? I I don't know. For, I mean, I think that's a trend now that I just think it's 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 chic slash fun for teams to rebuild and grab a lot of prospects uh, like like the Cubs are doing. Like, Well, actually, Tampa was sort of the trendsetter about 10 years ago at really just letting it go for three years, trading, drafting you know, uh, prudently, and then building a core team and just adding, subtracting, modifying it since. I, I, I think we're going to – I'm not sure what the next trend is, but that certainly teams are younger than they used to be, and it's still having a job is still important. So – uh, I, I, you still have to, to, to pull your weight, but I, it looks to me just like more and more young players are getting the nod to get a chance to show what they do. They're also cheaper initially, so I, and I, 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 just, I just see the trend totally towards that for now. And I wonder how long that uh, there's so much cheaper angle is going to persist because the CBA comes up, I think, at the end of next year, and somebody somewhere might make an argument that the union really shouldn't be negotiating away the the ability of Mike Trout to make a lot of money right out of the gate because if Mike Trout had been from the Dominican Republic, he could have made all kinds of dough as a as a as a rookie. And it turns out they they lock him in at three hundred or four hundred thousand bucks a year, rising to about six hundred, I think, after three years, something like that. But meanwhile he's actually worth twenty million and can't collect and I wonder how long that's going to continue. Really, I mean, if Mike Trout had been born in Cuba, uh, he would probably have enough money to buy Cuba by now, you know. It's true, it's true. I'm not sure what they'll do about that. Uh, obviously, they have to do something. But the, the backside of all of that stuff is, I, I think it all points to good things. I, I like it. I like it that baseball is so much more of an international game. I think it's really, really fun. I would like it to become even more so like soccer. I, I think that would be a total gas, uh, ultimately, and that if the World Series was a real World Series, I, I really would, uh, I, don't, I mean, I don't think that will ever happen in my lifetime, and maybe the way baseball in America is set up anyway will never happen as it is, but I, I, I like that idea. But being an internationalist, you know, I'm a hippie from Berkeley, what can I say? I've heard uh, discussions and suggestions in the past that they ought to set up a World Cup like like soccer has, and instead of using the All Star break for you know the purposes that it's currently used for, take the whole week off and allow the teams and most of the good players on all the baseball playing nations are in the big leagues anyway. And you could have some kind of elimination series that lasted for one week a year for four years. And then in the fourth year, you could have a World Cup with maybe involving the top four or six teams in some kind of real exciting round robin culminating in a, in a World Cup final game for all the marbles or two out of three series. I think it would be awesome if they could get a real World Cup of baseball going. I think that would be totally fun, too. I, I, I love seeing that stuff. It's, uh, I, 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 I really do. I, I, I would, I would support that all the way. Uh, I can see where people would would want to mix it, but uh, you know, I, I don't see what difference it makes. <laughs> try this, and we could still play that, and try this. Yeah, I'm with you. I like seeing good players play. I like seeing a good game. I like seeing. And the truth is, you know, I go, I go to see my friends' little league. My kids play, and grandkids play little league every year, 
and it's just as much fun as going to AT&T. It's the same game. The chances you can see something either brilliant or bonehead on any given pitch are the same. So they throw the ball around a little more in Little League, uh, but it's you know that's kind of what makes it fun. But that doesn't mean they don't throw the ball around too. You know, it doesn't mean that doesn't happen in the majors too. Sometimes, as we all know. No, no kidding. Yeah, Toronto and uh, Seattle had a. Uh, one ball thrown right by the second baseman, and then they ended up with two guys on third, and they both ended up being put out because the one guy was just out because he was there, and they tagged him, and then the other guy who was safe fell off the bag and got tagged. So yeah, it was a, it was a lot like watching little league. Uh, now that you mention it, uh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's that's why I love going to the fall league too. The fall league, the fall league, all the all the kids that play at the fall league obviously have some real talent and skill. But it doesn't stop them. I, I think my all-time favorite, my all-time favorite fall league play was um, uh, Drew Henson, the guy. I think he was, went to Michigan, and he was a quarterback there. And the Yankees drafted him because he could hit. He had some serious power, so they had him at third base. And uh, and this was in, in I think in Peoria. Uh, and uh, anyway, somebody hit a ball to you know to third, and 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 he made the most gorgeous Brooks Robinson across the body stab of this play across the bag in I mean it was a fair ball but he was in foul territory when he when he kind of his, his momentum stopped and he planted looked at the first baseman and promptly threw the ball like over the fence into the parking lot it was just fantastic I, I still I still remember it vividly you know what I remember from the Arizona Fall League and third baseman and I can't remember the kid's name he was a prospect of sorts but uh, he played every ball hit to him at third base like he was a hockey goalie or a catcher. And he would just let the ball hit him on the chest, then he'd bend over and pick it up off the ground and throw it to first. And I, I remember sitting with some uh, some of the people who were attending First Pitch Arizona and saying, you know, this guy's not putting me in mind of uh, Manny Machado over there. And everybody laughed. And yeah, after a while, it got to be kind of a joke because it, literally every time a ball was hit to him, all he did was let him hit him in the body. Uh, that wasn't Bobby Hull's kid, was it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's 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 fun to go to the fall league. That's what makes it fun. Well, also, I mean, we've got to see guys like Mike Trout and Buster Posey you know, early when when they were when they were brand new. It's really fun to say I saw those guys. We saw Albert Pujols when he was just before he he made it. I, you know, I remember him hitting three homers. Uh, I don't remember where, but he he parked three homers in a game one after the other over. Those, those giant center field scoreboard things each of those parks have, and geez, that was just we all kind of looked at each other. But I also remember our good friend Brendan Wood that that, that the year he hit his 41 homers, and and I just got into the ballpark and sat down with Todd, and so it was like the top of the second inning. So he was batting cleanup and leading off, first pitch thrown, just parked it in left field. I think he hit two homers in that game. We all went whoa, but we all. You know, that's how deceiving rookies. Rookies can look awful good. Prospects can look good. But in the end, he was still Brandon Wood. I remember sitting right down in the front row, as you often can, at an Arizona Fall League game. It was a night game. It was beautiful out. And uh, the the uh, the batter was Bryce Harper, and the guy behind him on deck was Mike Trout. And they were they were hitting in the same lineup. We got to watch them play. Uh, they didn't either of them play the whole game, I don't think. But, yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity to see guys who may change the game. And, and you can recognize them right away. And the guy, Laura, that really jumps out at me in that regard was Andrew McCutcheon. I remember the year we were at, the, at First Pitch Arizona. We went out to the ballpark, and 
although he was small, he was literally like a man among boys. He could run, he could hit, he could field. He threw a guy out from the outfield on the base paths. He stole a couple of bases, hit a home run and a triple. You know, it's just such an eye-opening performance and you discount it of course because it's the Arizona Fall League but you think to yourself if this guy's ever available in my draft I'm for sure going to grab him it's fine I knew you were going to say McCutcheon because I had the same experience and I don't I don't really look I try not to find out too much about who I'm going to go see I, I mean I know who the, the the best minor league players that are there are but I don't want to look them up too much or I don't want to know too much because I can I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but I can tell by watching how the guy runs, how the guy throws, how the guy takes a pitch, how he digs in. I could kind of get a good feeling of whether or not he's a, he can play or not. And the other thing I think you can see, and the other guy I remember this vividly about was, I believe it or not, Andrea Ethier, who people had dissed. But the year we were at the Fall League and Andrea Ethier was there, he just looked to me like the best athlete there. And same with Kutch. When I saw Kutch, I knew right away, screw everything else. This guy runs, throws, he just does everything more athletically. He looks natural and pretty. Whatever he does, it just look, he do, he looks, it looks so effortless to him that I like this guy. So I'm, I'm totally with you. But seeing, seeing guys do that, I, I like Joe Panic always, who had a hard time getting any cred, because every time I saw Joe Panic, I, I saw him there twice, he hit a laser home run to right field, just, just, just a BB. The ball bounced off his bat really nicely, and there's, there's something to be said for seeing that with your own eyes and going, oh, wow, look how the ball jumps off his bat, and that's got a real even line drive swing. If he hangs in there, he could be good, and he's pretty good, actually. He is pretty good, and uh, First Pitch Arizona, of course, uh, first week in November this year, go to BaseballHQ.com and check out the uh, information about First Pitch Arizona. Not only do you get to have all the seminars and all of the uh, uh, interaction with uh, experts and other serious fantasy baseball players, but you get to go see the games as well, and it's it's just a great time, and I, I heartily recommend it. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Laura Michaels from MastersBall.com and USA Today. And uh, Laura, you do write regularly for USA Today and the USAToday.com website. You, you had an article recently that you uh, talked about your love-hate relationship with certain players. So what causes a love or hate relationship to start and flourish? Well, and, and the, the thing that prompted that particular article was, was our good friend Gordon Beckham, whom I loved and and, and whom I traded for in my score sheet league in 2009 when he was a rookie looking good for Max Scherzer, who was still finding himself. And, well, if you just imagine having traded Gordon Beckham for Matt Scher, Max Scherzer, and it, it's, it becomes sort of rhetorical on why I don't like Gordon Beckham anymore. But uh, there's, there's just some stuff in players I do love uh, I, that I love to see. Uh, and, and there's also... Players who will irritate me, and, I'll, and I, I, there's just something about them. And I, I think that's probably true for all of us. But I, I love, a good example of a guy I love right now is Cole Calhoun, and I, he plays really hard. He seems to do a little bit of everything. I think he'll get better, and and I think he he has a chance to become a real a real star because he gets to play kind of in the shadow of Mike Trout, which takes a little bit of the star pressure off the guy. So and I, and I like Kyle Schwarber a lot too. He's a guy I really love right now. I, I saw his first spring homer, which happened to be a grand slam. The guy, but the, the guy just to me 
from the first time I saw him, just sort of has batting title written all over him. So a guy gets on the love or hate list based on his narrative or your experience with him. Is it possible for a player to become a lovable or hateable player for you just based on his player type? Boy, well, I'll tell you this. If you get on my sort of hate list, and and i got to be clear again, I don't really hate, I don't want to hate anything, but we all have those guys where, you know, you just you needed them you counted on them to do something for you for one or two years and they just didn't do it you finally just gave up and went i'm never having this guy in my team again or or the inverse and for the most part it's pretty hard for a guy to once a guy's on my off list i pretty much dismiss him forever which sometimes is a mistake but it also it felt like i was never a big fan of rafael palmero for example and obviously he proved to be very good uh, whether whether it was artificially induced or not, but after a while, it sort of got to be. Well, I get that he's really really good, but probably if I pick him up this year, this is the year he'll have an off year. So I do kind of overthink, get suspicious in that way, and kind of shy away from from some guys I I didn't like at first. But but mostly it's it's the way they play. First time I saw Sergio Romo's slider, I just went, oh, man, that's just a beautiful pitch. Or uh, the other guy I like to think back on is, if you remember back when, when Ubaldo Jimenez was in the World Series, and he just had that wicked 96-mile-an-hour fastball, and he had like a slider and a curve that were just, just had just all kinds of movement on them. And I think everybody went, whoa, I want that guy. That guy's great. Uh, He's had an up and down career since, but it's pretty hard to. I haven't. I haven't crossed Ubaldo off my list completely yet. Although I've had times when I drafted him and he more than disappointed. You know, my type that I love that I probably shouldn't is low strikeout, control finesse left-handed pitchers. I have Mark Burley on my tout team this year, and I'm glad of it. Those guys are really valuable. Mark Burley, I, I consider the Rodney Dangerfield of, of fantasy baseball. He always gives you 200 innings. He always gets you a 3.7 ERA. He always wins 13 games. He always strikes out 127 guys. He never gets hurt. He always has a whip like around 1.29. He's a perfect fourth or fifth pitcher in almost any format. And, you know, and you need those guys. You have to have somebody. You have to have somebody doing the the workmanlike statistical accumulation so that your stars, your sleepers, the guys who, who really bust out, that that's where you win, but those sleeper those those guys that build the foundation for you is what you really need. When I was thinking about it, it made me harken back to something that you and Todd did. I think in the FSTA draft, and I've talked to him about it, and I may have talked to you about it, but it was this idea of pairing your players rather than looking at them as individuals. And when I have a player like Mark Burley on my staff. I think to myself, now I have a little more leeway to maybe chase after a guy with a bit higher walk total, uh, you know, a higher strikeout guy, but a bit wilder without having to spend a lot of money on your Chris Sales or your, or your Clayton Kershaws. I can look for a pitcher who has that potential for strikeouts and I'll accept the walks and maybe the slightly uh, higher whip because I know Mark Burley's going to offset it with a lot of decent innings. Uh, actually, this year going into it, you probably could have even paired Burley with Ubaldo Jimenez, who probably wasn't that well thought of and had a really good run, and he's exactly, his numbers are always, when he's in the zone, when he's in the zone, he can strike out seven, eight guys a game and, and pitch very, very well. When he's not, he'll walk seven or eight guys a game. That's the... So, but if you got both of those guys for less than five bucks in your league and can swap them in and out depending on who they're facing and who's hot, that's exactly what you, you know, you always get a start or two every week 
and you, you get your numbers, and they're fairly dependable. They're, they're, they're less potentially volatile than the rookies, I think. But we've already discussed rookie pitchers, which is why I said, I think. <laughs> there, that's an interesting concept, and we'll talk about it another time, perhaps. But the idea of volatility of performance from week to week, of course, it's hugely important in, in daily fantasy, any kind of short-term thing, head-to-head, where you're playing one guy per uh, a different single opponent in a single week. I think pitcher volatility and player volatility in general is something that once we figure out how it works, it's going to be hugely important as we choose our rosters and as we choose our uh, our streaming choices in leagues that allow it. But I also think if, if somebody actually figures out how it works, they'll get a Nobel Prize or something. Because, you know, Z, Z uh, Lord Zola, and I have this discussion regularly because he's a scientist and, and I'm more of an artist. So, and not, not that he doesn't write artfully or I don't look at statistics crunch numbers, but... I'm, I'm a little liberal arts student, and he was a scientist. So I'm, I'm, he's more empirical, and I'm, I'm kind of more anecdotal. But, but I, I do think that, especially in daily games, it's, 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 it's such a microcosm of the body of stats, not only seasonal, but, but career-wise, that it's, it's really hard to, to capture that lightning in a bottle. There's, I mean, sometimes it seems more obvious than others, but I find I win or I do better. In, in daily games when by, by a great performance out of Kevin Kiermaier or Corey Spangenberg than out of Miguel Cabrera or Mike Trout. And that's hard to capture. It is, and that it's one of the one of the issues that makes fan, a daily fantasy so hard to play is that you're really trying to find, a, uh, especially hitters. I think, perversely, while we believe that hitters are more... Um, regular or less volatile than pitchers in daily, it seems to be the other way around, and you're trying to figure out, well, how am I going to manage all of that? Uh, Laura, you're, at Masters Ball last week, you had a column where you picked some bounce-back players for the second half of this year, and before we talk about any names, how did you pick out players that you thought were good candidates? I kind of just, I like looking at the stats, but I sort of look and see who's struggling. Um, it's kind of fun, the, the, the daily games give you give you kind of a clue, too, because Obviously, if Robinson Cano is only going to cost you twenty seven hundred bucks at the fantasy score game, for example, that's a pretty good buy most of the time against a right-handed pitcher. And and Cano had his troubles last year. He's a guy that made my list, for example. But everything in in his resume says he's going to do better. So or, or says he his his end of year mean is better than what he's doing, and he's done that for ten years. So that tells me, okay, I think he's hitting 254 when I wrote that column. Well, maybe he's not going to hit 300, but he could hit 275 or 280. It looks like he's starting to hit. Well, if he's going to hit 275 or 280 and he's hitting 250 now, that tells me he's probably going to hit 290 to 310 for the rest of the year, and that's a pretty good bet. Uh, another guy I liked was Carlos Santana, who had really good strikeout-to-walk numbers. I, I can't remember, but it was something like 54 to 60, and he had 10 homers. All of his numbers were really good, and his contact rates were pretty good, but his batting average was 229, and it's seeing a guy with who can make contact with really good on-base numbers like that, it's sort of the inverse of, of a pitcher who has a, a low ERA but a high whip. At some point, that high whip is going to burn that pitcher, and at some point, that patience at the plate and selectivity is going to be exploited by that hitter. So that's what, that's what I picked... On, on, on at least that's what 
to pick Cano and Santana, for example. Any pitchers on the list that you can uh, recall? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, well, I, we've talked about Irvin Santana, and I, I, he was the top pitcher on my list because he's had been he's become a pretty consistent, solid pitcher over the last few years. Number one, number two, he he wasn't coming off an injury. He he actually had three months where he could work out, strengthen, and let his arm, you know, kind of rest. He wasn't throwing a uh, hundred innings, so it wasn't like uh, Jose Fernandez, for example, where he was coming off an injury. We had to wonder, well, how long till he can cut loose? What's his velocity going to be? Is he going to feel comfortable with his control? Is he going to be worried that if he throws this or that pitch that he's going to torque out his arm again and feel comfortable? So I, I just thought that was a, a good, safe bet right there since there was no mechanical issue. And and I also, Mike Fires on the uh, on the Brewers had a really monster second half last year. He's pitched a lot better lately. He's a strikeout pitcher, and he just kind of looks like, and, and there are players, I remember when I was first playing, really playing sim games, it was Stratomatic, and I always had the Kansas City Royals, and one of the things I learned about Dennis Leonard is he got pounded in April and that nobody could hit him in September. And there are really guys like that that just buckle down and really do it uh, in the pennant stretch. And maybe Matt Kemp and Mike Fires are those kind of guys. They certainly were last year. Kemp's numbers are picking up now again, so maybe he's just become a second-half player. Well, I think this year will tell, but at least it's, it's worth checking trends like that, whether or not the experts they can actually, you know, streak. Whether whether or not people think streaks can be followed, streaks do happen, and people, just like players, come out of the blocks hot. Sometimes there are those guys who just start hot and then they cool down. Emilio Bonifacio is a really good example of that. He always seems to start well, not this year, but he always seems to come out of the blocks hitting 320 and stealing 15 bases in April, and then he hits 230 and steals five bases after that. I drafted Emilio Bonifacio in my Tell Wars auction, and uh, yeah, this was the year he decided to take uh, April off as well, <laughs> unfortunately for me. You have my uh, sympathy, my friend. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Laura Michaels from Masters Ball in USA Today. And uh, Laura, you had a Masters Ball column about patience, and in it you looked at the Tout Wars American League and you counted the transactions to see if there was a connection between transaction activity and success in the league. Uh, what did you find out and how did it affect your impressions about the importance of the draft versus roster management in season? Certainly it seemed like the top teams were the teams that made the most moves. Um, and it also was very clear to me that the bottom three teams had made, of, of which one was mine, had made the least moves. Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that tells me. It, I mean, I had a team with Irvin. That team had Irvin Santana, so I had to make a move right away, whether I liked it or not. Uh, and, and, and I tried to fill in the, the, the spot the best I could. But I, I, I think I think we have to recognize both the draft, initial draft, and then the whole. Fab slash waiver process are, are are very symbiotic. You can't you can't win without a solid draft. But injuries and underperformance that happens to everybody, and you can't win without uh, w- without playing the waiver wire and trying to make sure that you get maximum bats, maximum innings. So and so I, I I'm not sure 
I'm not sure if one feeds the other, but I do think if the ulta or well, well, they do feed the other. They're they're symbiotic, but it's more the case of whatever it is that you have to do to get the most at bats you can every day and the most innings pitched you can every day. That's what you have to do within the confines of the rules. If you can exploit that, that's going to give you your best chance of winning. Um, I, I I I think I might have been a little too patient in town. I also spent most of my fab money on Mark Trumbo when he got traded over, so that kind of handcuffed me a little bit. But, uh, you know, and I do think if an opportunity to pick up an impact player like that happens, or a potential impact player, if that comes up, you have to take advantage of it for sure. But, uh, again, it doesn't matter what the format. It, it's all about how many at-bats and how many innings I could get because the more of those you have, the better your chances to deliver points. After I read your column, uh, I went and looked at Tell Wars Mixed, and I took everybody's roster, and I assumed that they made no moves and saw where they would be in the standings had they made no moves, and we just played with the rosters that we drafted and compared their placements and their points differences. And it was quite surprising that there were five teams out of the 15 in the league that were within six points of their what they would have had. In other words, whatever whatever they were doing, they, they only gained or lost uh, zero to six points as a result of the, all the transactions that they made versus just standing pat and not doing anything, including two of them with no difference whatsoever. So they've made uh, all of their transactions. They've done all of these kind of things, and, uh, and yet they made absolutely no difference. But on the other hand, there was a team that has lost 25 points based on what they uh, drafted and uh, there's a team that gained 46 and he's in first place so i it, it i think this is an area where it could be interesting to look into yeah yeah that that is interesting it's god i i uh, but but i would get on one hand i would guess that the team that lost 25 points probably lost it due to impatience where they dumped somebody you know, like Macbeth, he you know ripped from his mother's womb uh, untimely. They they dumped him untimely. But uh, on the other hand, the guy that picked up forty seven points was definitely playing the wire right. Yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to look into it in detail, and I wondered if, uh, of course, when you see a guy who's drafted a team that has picked up uh, that many points and and uh, was projected to, get, to have a lot more, maybe he suffered from injuries and stuff like that. So I think I need to delve into that a little more to find out what the what the root causes of the of the shortfalls or gains are. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to say the least. Uh, when you look at this kind of situational lore. When you draft in an AL-only league as your tout league is, the cupboard is pretty bare. Once the draft is over, there's not a lot left, especially for hitters. But in a mixed league, there is still you know, something of a free agent pool that you can look at. So how do you think the issue of transacting your way to success is different in mixed versus an only league situation? Oh, it's huge to me. And, and, and I... Um by mixed league, I'm assuming most people play 15 team or less. I, I, I know there are more, and, and, and they get kind of the old Roger Maris asterisk. But, but if you're playing 15 teams or less, for the most part, you at least can build a roster of everyday players, and there's always somebody in the free agent pool who's just coming up who's going to play every day. So the, the, the scramble for at-bats and innings is not as desperate where, however, the results or the efficiency of those at-bats is, is becomes even more critical. If I'm playing in an AL-only league, almost everybody's got three or four little holes between starting pitching or a reliever or, 
or having the likes of Emilia Bonifacio or Joaquin Arias on your roster because that was the last guy and the thin league is so thin that, that you got to put somebody out there. And so I, it, the, the scramble for at-bats and innings is much more desperate. But, but in the long haul, and, and we, well, I think we touch on this later, in the long haul, it, 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 it's even for everybody. It's just whether or not you're fortuitous enough to make the right choices. I think there's a lot to be said to it, and I try to yield towards this to, to kind of sort of uh, hypertext things that I look at when I'm drafting are one, what's the likelihood, what's the injury history of the guy, because certainly injuries can absolutely destroy your team. They killed my labor team this year, for example, and they killed my score sheet team this year. The other thing is it, I think it helps to pick players who are on teams who are, are going to be contenders because the chances are, especially if they're regulars, that they'll get the largest complement of at-bats over the long haul. If you're a good player on a non-successful team and it's September and you're, not, you're a good player but not a great player, you're going to lose playing time to a prospect, and that means you're going to lose at-bats. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Lore Michaels. And Lore, uh, I invited uh, our correspondents at bhqradio at gmail.com to ask questions. And we have a question from Sean in Binghamton, New York. Wants to know about the influx of new statistics into the game like we're seeing on StatCast and like we're reading about all over the place. And Sean wants to know, what sort of advanced stats do you see coming over the next few years to better predict performance? I have no idea. And in fact... Some of the stats that are being looked at today to me are kind of beyond my grasp. I, I, I still think, you know, I, let's, we got we, we to go back to Bull Durham. It's a simple game. You know, you hit the ball, you throw the ball, you catch the ball. And I, I, to me, the real numbers that will always kind of break it down are on-base percentage for a hitter and whip and, and for a pitcher and then strikeout-to-walk rates for both because that basically tells me whether a hitter or a pitcher has what kind of command they have over the strike zone because the greater their command, the more successful they should be. And, and I know, like, uh, Lord Z is big down with uh, WOBP, and he's big on runs created, and I'm kind of still trying to sort my way through those things. And, and like I said, he's a scientist and I'm a writer, so that is why we make a good team. But I also think, I, I, you know, one of the things I tell people, especially when they're new playing fantasy baseball, is don't, don't read too much. Don't look, you know, look, look at some basic numbers that you feel comfortable with that you think will point to success. But I think one of the problems we all have is we overthink and we look, we get too many opinions and then you get just as confused as if you didn't know what to do in the first place. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Now, when, when I started at BaseballHQ.com uh, back in the era when Joe DiMaggio was playing, uh, there was a fairly limited set of these metrics, but at the time they were considered pretty advanced. We were looking at strikeouts per nine, for instance. We were looking at um, walks per nine and strikeouts per walks, as you mentioned. And these were things that were not being captured by a lot of, uh, of fantasy players who were more interested in wins and ERA and whip and so forth. And gradually, I think everybody has learned that these metrics are good. Then we went up a, a notch as better information started coming out, and especially I was interested in how, what kind of hard contact were players making, and if a player was making a lot of hard contact but not getting rewarded, I thought, here's a guy who has a chance to maybe pick up some power down the road as his luck evens out, and it 
it works, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. And similarly for pitchers, if you can avoid giving up hard contact, that's a pitcher you should be interested in. Now we're seeing things like the, uh, the sites that offer us the speed of various pitches and especially bat ball off the bat speed, which is a new stat that's come out in StatCast. And it seems like we're getting so granular that at some point we're going to be missing the opportunity to just see what's going on out there because we're so busy looking at, you know, this guy's hitting it off the bat at 106.5 miles an hour and this guy's at 107.5 or 107 even. Therefore, there's a huge difference. And really, sometimes the difference is just in the measurement. Yeah, well, and just because somebody hits it hard doesn't mean that, you know, I'll bet you Ishiro did not score very hard, high on the speed to which the ball comes off of his bat. But for 15 years, he made the best contact of anybody on on the planet. So, I, you know, I, I think that has to be taken into consideration. And I'm not poo-pooing stats either when I do my daily picks like I said about Looking at, at at Cole Hamels, I looked at you know, I looked at how the team does against left-handed hitters, uh, how the team uh, or left-handed pitchers, how the Cubs did, what their on-base numbers were, what their strikeout numbers were, and those are numbers that we we didn't really have at our disposal back in the Joe DiMaggio era either. But I just I just think uh, you know to some degree when they're looking at that, it's funny when they're looking at that the speed of the ball coming off the bat because. On TV, when you watch it, they act like it's a big deal, but it doesn't really tell me anything other than the guy hit the ball hard, which most of the time means that the pitcher threw the ball hard, too. I don't know how that works. That's interesting to think about. Uh, I I know that uh, uh, I've seen some tremendously hard-hit pop flies that were just, in the end, easy outs, so uh, I think there's got to be some kind of combination, and I I know that they present this information that you need hard-hit contact Plus, you need a trajectory that favors the likelihood of the ball finding a gap or going over the fence, and that's part of it, too. Uh, We have another question. This one's an audio question. Uh, Somebody sent in a question uh, to bhqradio at gmail.com, and they attached their question as spoken word, so good for them. Uh, Here's a question from uh, Massachusetts. Um, 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 Hi. I'm, I'm, I'm Zod Tola. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and I wanted to ask Mr. Michaels, you're the greatest, by the way, I wanted to ask Mr. Michaels, is is Todd Zola as, as good-looking as he sounds on the Friday HQ Radio podcasts? I'll, I'll hang up and take your answer off the air. Thank you. So, Laura, uh, this Zod Tola wants to know, uh, Todd Zola, is he just that good-looking? Even better. <laughs> Even better. He's my mate. <laughs> Todd's a wonderful guy, uh, a wonderful human being, and I love him dearly. What else can we say about him? We all love him. He's funny and he's smart, and uh, he's a good guy. He is really funny. That's uh, something that maybe doesn't come across as often on the podcast because we're talking about what, for our listeners, is fairly serious stuff. So we uh, keep the levity to a minimum. But uh, at First Pitch Arizona, to go back to that, when Todd's on a panel, you really want to be attending because he'll crack a couple of excellent jokes, including one I remember very specifically that I really can't say on the podcast because it's a, a little not safe for work kind of content. But it was very, very funny. Uh, finally, I think that was a Wade Boggs line, if I remember correctly. Uh, or something or something thereabouts but yeah he's really really funny 
really, really funny. Also, I, you know, all, all props do. Doug Dennis is also a very, very, very funny guy. He's another guy you want to make sure. In fact, if, if Z and, and Doug are on the same panel, look out. That's, uh, that's, that's going to be a, a very uh, acerbic and, and self-deprecating uh, session that everybody will want to see. You know, for a couple of years, uh, I was the host of the Facts or Flukes panel, and in those days there was just one for hitters and pitchers. They've since split it up. But my panelists were uh, Todd, Doug Dennis, Jeff Erickson, and Joe Sheehan. Oh, so it was plenty uh, that of fun. Would, that would be, you know, if you could throw Jason in there to pair off with, uh, with, with, with Joe, that would probably be, you know, some kind of uh, magic ma- magic uh, pentangle or, or, or quintuplet or Whatever, whatever, whatever the five of them would be as a as as an adjective or a noun, but uh, but yeah, that, those are those are because uh, Erickson is very very funny as well, very quick and yes, very very understated. He he just kind of says stuff and it just kind of pops out. But those are all very funny guys. Yeah, it's a very funny crowd, actually. Gene McCaffrey's funny. You're funny. Uh, we have a lot of fun at First Pitch Arizona. Uh, Steve in Eugene, Oregon, uh, writes to ask, why do so many National League and American League-only leagues still have rules that eliminate players from your roster when they're traded to the other league? In a game that already factors in so much luck, this rule seems cruel and unus- unusually punitive. This rule seems cruel and unusually punitive. In his only league's lore, they get to keep players traded out of league until the end of the current year. What do you think of this issue? Uh, I, I don't really think it's an issue. I, I do think a lot of rules like these stem back from the early days of leagues, uh, when the earliest Roto leagues. That, that's the way the first leagues were set up. Uh, I, I remember my very first league, as I noted to you early on, I had Tom Bernanski and uh, in 1988, and he got he got traded like to the Cardinals, and I got nothing. And that's those, but those were the rules. That's that. Uh, I I think as long as the rules are unilaterally enforced, they are not punitive to anybody. Those are the breaks. That's the game. That's what baseball baseball. You know, there there is no crying in baseball because those are the breaks. You just have to play them as they are and not feel so much victimized by them. I do think that. The way to win is to understand and know those rules and sort of embrace them as opposed to trying to figure out how to change them so that you're not victimized because everybody, again, is victimized the same. And, and I re- actually, I really like it when rules are tough like that. And I like it, because, well, for one, I, I, I always analogize fantasy baseball in, in variations that I'd rather play in an AL-only league with very tough rules and win then play in a, a, a mixed league twelve team format because it's in the mixed team twelve league format is kind of like playing Dr Pepper poker, where two thirds of the cards are wild cards, so you could win with you know seven aces. Well, that's just silly. Um, to me, playing AL only uh, a strict AL only is, is like playing five card stud, where you could win with a pair of eights, but it's really hard to do, but you can do it. And I think if our objective is to try to replicate real baseball on the field, then that means we have to endure Joaquin Arias on our roster just like the Giants do. But ultimately, I think you don't get too wrapped up around the rules axle. The best way to win is just to know what the rules are and exploit them and kind of forget about whether there's any judgment associated with them. It doesn't really matter. 
the idea that you're going to lose a player if he's traded out of league also presents something of an opportunity in your valuation process, I think. When you look at the players whom you might draft, you might, uh, for, for instance, this year, you might have looked at the Reds and thought to yourself, because of your baseball acumen, this is a team that's going nowhere. This is a team that has very little chance, and they they could very well be sellers at the deadline, and Cueto's an expiring contract. He's the likeliest guy on the team to be traded because he's going to bring back the most value. And that, therefore, at auction, there should have been some kind of discount that you applied to Johnny Cueto out of the realization and the suspicion that you might lose him, and if he gets traded, there's a 50% chance he's out of league, and you lose him. So it's an if you think about it that way, it's kind of an opportunity to prove your acumen. It, that's that's not only exactly true, but I believe, at least at NL Labor, both Cole Hamels and um, Jonathan Papelbaum were, I hate to say victimized, but they're, they're, the uncertainty around them kept kept their prices down a little bit. So, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, you know... It, but it, 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 would, it wouldn't be the same as, it, it's no different than drafting, you know, I had David Wright in the XFL. The guy gets hurt, you know. Yes. I should have known the guy was going to get hurt. I didn't pay that much for him, but I should have known the guy would get hurt. And, okay, if he lasts all season and I only paid 19 bucks for him, woohoo, I got a good deal. But the truth is, he didn't, and it was a waste of money. There is a uh, pretty obvious analogy to a guy getting traded out of the league versus a guy getting hurt and, and be missing the rest of the season. That's for sure. You know, uh, Laura, you mentioned Tom Brunanski. I'll tell you an anecdote about Tom Brunanski. It has nothing to do with this question, but I have a friend who's not a baseball fan, and he was in Boston, and his cousin got him a ticket to see the Red Sox play uh, the Twins at Fenway Park. And as I said, my buddy, he's not a fan, but he thought, hey, it's Fenway Park, it's a night baseball game, it'll be fun. He's never seen a big league game before. So he takes the ticket and he goes to the game. And in that game, the Red Sox turned two around-the-horn ground ball triple plays, and Tom Bernanski was the batter in both of them. That's that's just incredible. I, I, I've seen a lot of games. I've never seen a triple play. I'm, I'm sure I've seen close to a thousand games by now, but and I've never seen. I've seen a lot of other good stuff, but but I, I, I've never seen one to sort of see two in one game with the same batter. That's just. But that's what makes baseball so wonderful and bizarre and magical to me is stuff like that happens. You've seen a thousand games. Have you ever seen a perfect game? I mean, there in the park. I have indeed. I uh, I, I got to score for Major League Baseball Dallas Braden's perfect game, and I also saw Jose Jimenez's no hitter over the Arizona Diamondbacks when Randy Johnson was the loser and threw a one hitter. And uh, the Dallas Braden game Mother's Day a couple of years ago, was it not? Yeah, I think two, a little more, the 2012 maybe it was. So, but yeah, yeah, it was, that was fantastic. That was a big thrill. I still have my score sheet. Uh, I don't know if I can remember every pitch anymore, but I, I did for, I pretty much could go through the whole thing and, Recite what pitch was where and what happened. Uh, Eighty-nine pitches. If if I uh, now nah, wait, hundred nine pitches. Uh, now I now I'm gonna mess myself up. It's something with that ended with nine. Yeah, I remember the Braden perfect game because I was uh, it was Mother's Day and I was barbecuing hamburgers for my wife and family. And of course, uh, here in the East Coast, it was getting towards dinner time when they were in the getting towards the latter part of the game, and he still hadn't allowed a base runner. And so my family's yelling, we want our food. <laughs> and I'm yelling back, you got to wait because this guy's throwing a perfect game. And then, of course, he did. Uh, you've also seen some, uh, uh, like the first at-bat from, who was it? Ken Griffey Jr. 
Ken Griffey Jr. hit a double off Dave Stewart off the center field wall in the Oakland Coliseum, his very, very first major league at bat, and I saw that. Uh, I saw Ricky Henderson break the all-time stolen base record. In fact, I have a little certificate that he passed out that he was gracious enough to even sign for me. So I have that. It's great. I have that framed with my ticket to the game, and I had like a eighth or ninth row seat, and I think it cost like $7. It was really cheap. At the, you know, it was 30, 25 years ago, so it was a, a pretty cheap ticket in relative in a relative sense. Uh, I saw Willie McCovey's final major league hit, which was also a double off the center field wall at Candlestick Park. So I've got to see some some pretty cool stuff. I've been very, very lucky. And players, too. I got to see, you know, most of the players now that are are, are leaving us, the, the, the stars of the 50s and early 60s. I got to see Juan Marichal. I got to see Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews, Roberto Clemente, Stan Musial, Bob Gibson, Sandy Koufax, I got to see, well, I got to see a lot of Willie Mays and Orlando Cepeda and Willie McCovey. Uh, I'm a very lucky guy. I got to see all that stuff. It was great. Now, did you ever see anybody hit an inside the park home run or hit for the cycle? Uh, I actually did see one cycle. Believe it or not, it was at a minor league game, and it was Dave Newhan uh, who did it for the uh, San Jose Giants. And I remember a couple of years later. Uh, he was at spring camp, Newhand was at spring camp with the Rangers, and I was walking through the Rangers clubhouse with Jason Gray, and we had our media passes on, and we walked past Newhand's locker, and I saw him standing there, and I stopped, and I went, Dave, and he looked at Jason and me, and he saw our press passes, and, you know, immediate suspicion. What do you these guys want? These guys are writers. I don't want to talk to these guys. I think his dad was a writer, so he must have had extra charge or something. I said, Dave, and he went, what? And I went, uh, nothing. I just wanted to tell you, I saw you hit for the cycle when you were with San Jose. And Jason, Jason pointed out to me, he said, did you see how wide his grin got when you mentioned that? Because he just broke out in this huge smile, and it was like, oh, okay, they're not going to ask me anything that, uh, you know, that I don't want to talk about. So he just went, oh, that was great. That was my only cycle I ever did. No, that's okay. It was the only one I ever saw. So, But that was... That was that was that was pretty much fun. Uh, so it's 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 a fun game. I also one of my, my my greatest greatest favorite things was I scored a game right after they invoked the new replay rule on home runs and doubles and foul balls. And I'm at I'm I'm scoring the game for MLB in, at at and T Park, and um, somebody I can't remember who was on first base, but. Uh, um, God, who was the Benji Molina was was with the Giants, and Benji came in and and to pinch hit, or maybe he was at bat anyway, and he crushed a ball off the top of the right field wall, and it bounced back so hard, and we all know Benji wasn't exactly a speed burner, that all Benji could get off of it was a single, and the ball came back in. And um, they sent Emmanuel Burris, uh, Bochi sent Emmanuel Burris in to pinch run for, for uh, Benji because it was late in the game. And just before the next pitch is made, Bochi calls time and he brings the ball out and he shows the umpire that there's a little green spot on the ball which suggests it hit the copper above the brick on the fence and that would make the ball a home run. So they stop everything and go into the replay booth and look at it, and sure enough, they get a home run. But 
Benji had already left the field, and Emmanuel Burris had already come in. So Burris got the run scored. I think Benji got a home run and the RBIs, but Burris got the run scored, and Benji didn't. And we couldn't. I had to. We couldn't finish my box score. There was no provision for overriding anything like that. So, they, so somebody in MLB had to manually go in and there massage the data. But I, I still remember Burris coming in. Uh, after scoring and and Molina giving him a high five and saying nice hit, so but that was just an awesome thing to see. I I, I loved it. That was that's again kind of like Drew Henson. That's why I love watching baseball. It's so goofy. Laura, with the trade deadline coming up on Friday, we've already seen some deals. I'm curious. You're a Bay Area guy. You have connections to the A's. What did you think of the Scott Casimir deal? Um, I made a lot of sense, uh, and, and I I. I I don't think it, I didn't like too much the the pitcher. Uh, what's his name? I think Dan Medjin that they got, but but the kid they got, Joseph Nottingham, just Jacob Nottingham. He's a really big guy, and he was he was having a pretty good pretty good year this year. Uh, he is he is hitting like three twenty seven, fourteen, sixteen. He's only twenty, so I you know Billy Bean has a pretty good eye. Plus Nottingham was from I think he's from Redwood City, which is in the Bay Area, which tells me probably somebody in his organization been watching him for a while. So I, I, I think that was a pretty good trade. And, and, you know, Billy's pretty good. Sometimes he makes mistakes. I, I, I still rue the loss of Carlos Gonzalez. But, but he, Billy does pretty good. Billy's a pretty, pretty sharp guy. He, he's, he's always interesting, and he's always worth watching what he does. What did you think of the Johnny Cueto deal to Kansas City? The Reds looked like they got a nice haul. It looks like they got a nice haul. I I totally love Brandon Finnegan. I, I think I like John Lamb a lot. Those are both really good guys. But and and with the push towards young pitchers and how successful they've been too, I think that bodes well for them. And you know, I, I always fall back on there's there's a whole lot more Brandon Woods than there are Albert Pujols's. So you know, you always got to watch it. They're still prospects, and Johnny Cueto is a star. So. But I think it clearly this makes the Royals this makes the Royals very dangerous. That's for sure. Um, let's talk about some of the other National League guys that we've heard about besides Johnny Cueto that are going to be traded, uh, and of course with ramifications for the, if they get traded into the into the American League. Uh, coming off that dominant no hitter, uh, what do you think of Cole Hamill's chances of being traded, and where might he go? Uh, I think he still has some gas. Obviously, um, uh, he was playing a team that's vulnerable to a strong uh, his skill set. But I do think he's lost a little luster. Do I, I think he would have, even no hit or not, he would have got a higher return had he been traded at the beginning of the season. But I, and, and actually, the team I was thinking it's local, but the thing I was the team I was thinking could probably use him is is, is the Giants. Uh, I think Heston has been pitching really well for them. Bumgarner's been pitching really, really well. But their their rotation depth is. I, you know, I like Tim Hudson. He's older. How durable is he? Uh, Matt Cain is still kind of questionable. He's he's not that much. I, I don't know how much they can depend on him. So I, uh, you know, Tim Linscombe. Uh, so I, I I think he might be a good fit on that team. Jake, they have Jake Peavy. They have well, they have two pretty good starters, and then a bunch of guys who I don't know. So I, I think Hamels might be a nice fit in there just to kind of stabilize at least the number three spot. The story about the Reds was that the owner was not willing to throw in the towel with the fact that they've now traded Johnny Cueto. It looks like maybe the general manager, Walt Jockety, has finally talked him into it. So what about uh, Jay Bruce or Aroldis Chapman? 
I think Chapman, I like, uh, we, we've sort of been discussing Papelbon earlier. I think Chapman would be a really nice cog to go to almost any team. I mean, he's an instant closer, but that means he makes, he goes on a team with a pretty good closer. He, make, he all of a sudden gives them a killer setup, man. So that's just that much more depth. Um, I, I've always thought Jay Bruce was overrated. I, I, I remember even when he started to make it, I always said that he was, that he was the new Adam Dunn, and the truth is he isn't as good as Adam Dunn. So I, I think if he gets traded, at best he's sort of a Mark Trumbo uh, clone. And, and I like I, I don't know if he's that good, but, but and, and, and I'm not meaning to diss Trumbo, but I, I think Bruce is a pretty one-dimensional guy at this point, a lot of strikeouts. Get you a few bags, though. Yeah, a few. I don't know. He's got to get on to do it. That's a big part of it, all right. Uh, the Rockies, we've heard some... Uh, uh, bandying about of names like Troy Tulowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez. Are the Rockies ready to throw in the towel and start over? I don't know if they're ready to start over. Those guys are going to be expensive, but they're really, really good, and they're such a good core for any team. The problem with them is obviously their durability, but those would be killer acquisitions anywhere. Those guys are, I mean, in just a NFC-type draft, those guys are second-rounders at worst. So, And like I said, I still rue the day Oakland traded traded cargo i you could i could tell i saw him a lot his rookie season and i think half of his first 40 hits were doubles so even though he's only hitting 220 or 230 he he had gap power he was a fantastic center fielder rate did great defensively really really fast and fluid so but those te- those guys would help any team as long as they could stay healthy they're really good the Padres have been really disappointing after an off-season rebuilding project that was an ad- absolute catastrophe. Do you think uh, Justin Upton and James Shields might be on the way out of town? Could be. They're going to have to do something. They're going to have to go completely back to the drawing board, though, I think. But, but again, those are very good players, and, and I, I see Shields going back to the American League and being really good. For a while, there were some rumors that he might go back to Kansas City, which I don't know how crazy he'd have been about that. I'd sure hate to, to leave San Diego weather-wise and go practically anywhere else. Yeah, San Diego's very nice. Uh, it's it's I, I hate to say it's nicer than the Bay Area, but it's 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 even a little it's a little warmer in the summer and a little warmer in the winter. And finally, the Brewers, uh, another disappointing team. They have three players whose names have propped up in these uh, trade rumors that we read about probably way too much: uh, Adam Lind, Carlos Gomez, and even Jonathan Lucroy. Those are all again great players. Uh, they're all having pretty good years. Although I've I've had my issues with. Carlos, Carlos Gomez was on that kind of my list of guys that I, I always thought he was overrated for years and years. So by the time he got good, I had dismissed him so much that it was hard for me to take him seriously, even though he has produced very nice numbers. But all of those guys, especially Lucroy, if you want a steady catcher who makes good contact, he's very good. That guy can hit. So those would all be great players. And I really love, I, I love it that, that, uh, that the, they added the extra wild card team because it does. It, it, I think it does make the trade deadline week a lot more fun. It just makes it all a little more interesting to the end. It kind of makes it kind of. It's kind of if we analogize it to our rotisserie leagues, it makes it so that the fourth or the fifth place teams that are seven points out might actually have a chance still, and that's at, uh, you know down to the wire, and that's fun. I like that. And so let's have an over under. Uh, if if I say the over under is seven. Counting the two that we've had, seven name players changing hands before the deadline. You take the over or the under? I think they'll be over. I think they'll be. I think they'll be four or five big, kind of surprising blockbuster type moves, all made 
Thursday, Friday, too, or Wednesday, Thursday, I think there's going to be some big moves made. You have a band, Laura, that plays in the Bay Area, the Bile Tones, and uh, I understand you were recently on the road in Chicago, so how'd the shows go? Oh, it was big fun. Actually, our first set was a little bit rugged. Uh, you know, they, they, if they publicized us as a San Francisco band, we got a little bit of a funky turnout, and but, uh, you know, that happens when you play dive bars. That doesn't matter where it is. But our second night, uh, we played in a, a great little club called Frankie's Blue Room in Naperville, and we packed the house. They had a great set. There was a great sound system. It was, it was really not, not only was it a lot of fun, but it, at this point, my band. We've been together for eight years. We're we're a pretty tight bar band by now, and so it sort of cracks me up when my friends and family members who come up to see us out of sort of some kind of curiosity or obligation, and they they say later on, "Wow, I I didn't realize you guys were actually good." <laughs> me up now, but it happens. <laughs> yeah hey you guys can play that's not bad yeah oh yes i know how to play the bass i'm in addition to standing up in front of people i can play the bass and sing and sing in tune yes i know how to keep beat so but you know it's fun i'd rather hear that than ugh, you know <laughs> well i'm glad i came to see you and the, uh, the subtext is that we're terrible <laughs> yeah uh, and they quickly want to change the subject to, to something else so uh yes yeah how did you managed to get a gig in Chicago when you're uh, way out there in the Bay Area? Well, our lead guitar player, uh, Bill Alberti, is from uh, uh, a Chicago, Chicago suburb called Hinsdale. And my wife, Diane, also, uh, she was born uh, down in, in, in Chicago, in the Chicago suburbs, and lived in Algonquin, which is a northwest suburb, till about five years ago. We had a long-distance relationship for years and years, but she has friends and family and 55 years' worth of ties or 53 years' worth of ties to Chicago. And then also, I have a lot of baseball friends. Stats Incorporated is based in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Chicago, so my friend Dean Peterson is there, Tony Nistler is there, uh, Andy Behrens lives in Chicago, uh, so uh, uh, Christina Carl lives in Chicago. So, and, and then also, I used to work for AT&T, so I, and Diane and I, my, my wife and I both have a lot of AT&T friends that are common to us that live there. So we sort of figured amongst all of us, we could, if we could draw 100 people between both gigs, which we came pretty close to, that would be pretty good and that would make the, the bars happy. Because you could be in a bar band, but the bottom line in the rugged music industry is they don't really care how good you are. It's how many people will come and buy alcohol and spend money. So if you're a lousy band and you can pull 60 people who each spend 40 bucks on booze and food, you're a lot better than a good band who can only draw 20 people to spend the same amount of money. And usually if you can only draw those 20, they don't drink either. They just sit there uh, nursing a coffee and saying, this is heavy, man. Yeah, or talking to each other. You know, it's one of the, one of the other hard things to get about playing is in front of in front of smaller crowds like that is sometimes the people just came to meet at the bar and talk and they don't care whether you're playing or not so it's it's almost like you have to pretend you're practicing so you know again all learning Laura you're also a regular contributor to rockremnants.com a site you co-founded to devote to discussion of topics in rock and roll and music in general uh, what have you been writing about lately at rockremnants.com uh, it, it's been a real busy summer for me. Diane and I have been traveling a lot. I did, I did put a thing up uh, on a great ELO song from their album El Dorado called Illusions in G Major, where you can really, <clears throat> you can really see uh, Jeff Lynne giving his Chuck Berry roots uh, uh, a, a walkthrough. Um, I was just going to write about Prairie Rose, 
the uh, really great Roxy music song that I was actually uh, we're in uh, we're up at our our, our summer house and, uh, and uh, up near Lake Tahoe and our friend of ours Didi's up here and we were we were sharing music that that neither of the other person knew that well and I played Prairie Rose for her the other day and I just was reminded what a what a great 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 song it is and then she played me this other song called Number Two Mabui Ma, Ma Dance Number Two by Haruomi Hosona that I, I was found very very hypnotic so I'm gonna I'm sure it'll make poor Steve Moyer's head spin because it won't be rock and roll, but I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to stick it out there anyway because I started listening to it and it became really hypnotic. So, um, but yeah, those are those are those are the things I've been. I, I'll pick up my writing when baseball season slows down a little. I thought I thought after my AT&T retirement things would get quieter and I could write more, but I think I'm busier than ever. And which of those songs would you like to play, uh, the ELO or the uh, Roxy Music? ELO one. That's a really great Chuck Berry kind of. All right, then, here is Electric Light Orchestra, Illusions in G Major, a recommendation of Lore Michaels. From their album El Dorado, that's Electric Light Orchestra, and Illusions in G Major, recommended by Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com and USA Today. And Lore, as you know, during the season, I always like our experts to talk about some facts and flukes. That's hitters and pitchers in both leagues who are 
having outlier performances, shall we say, performances that defy expectations either for the good or for the ill. Uh, maybe let's start in the American League. Who's a hitter in the American League that's surprising you so far this year, Lore? And is that performance a fact or a fluke? Um, well, I actually talked about him a little. Carlos Santana, he's got a great on-base, great power, good contact, low average, and I think that'll correct. Um, I, I just expected him to do a lot better. And another guy, just to keep an eye on, uh, I don't think he could have hit any worse up until about 10 days ago, but Carlos Sanchez on the uh, White Sox is on a little bit of a tear. He's hit two homers in the last 10 days. He's batting like 380. Uh, I don't know where this came from, but maybe he figured it out. <laughs> and in the National League, who's a hitter that's an outlier on expectations but could be a fact or a fluke? Well, I, I'm looking at I'm looking at Matt Kemp again, uh, he, whose numbers, midseason numbers were almost identical, uh, oddly, to those of Robinson Cano. Uh, he had such a hot second half last year. He's picked up his hitting now. Um, I thought I think we all thought, he had kind of returned to form after a second half last year, but maybe he's just a second half guy. And then on the same second base uh, jag as Carlos Sanchez, Jid Yorko's getting a, another chance with the injuries to Corey Spangenberg, and he's been hitting the ball pretty okay lately. So I, it, and he had such good credentials and such a great rookie year. I, I, I hate to toss him to the Wolves just now. Keep him with the Friars, I guess, right? Which is worse, being a Friar or a Wolf? Yeah, I don't know. Let's move over to the mound. An American League pitcher, outlier performer, fact or fluke? Um, I, I think Scott Casper. I like Scott. He's a great story. I think he's going to have a bad correction pitching where he's pitching now. Um, and I, I think he's going to get pounded a little bit. Uh, and I, I talked about this guy earlier also, uh, Irvin Santana. I, I, it's kind of You can't really call the first part of the season a fluke. Uh, I, I, I don't know if he was completely unawares of getting caught the way he did, but again, no arm issues. There is no reason for him not to be able to pitch as well as he ever has, and I think he's going to give some really good, strong second-half numbers. I'm not sure if that helps the Twins do anything, but I think he's going to have some good second-half numbers. Twins have been a really pleasant surprise, so uh, if he does anything, certainly help them in their somewhat chaotic uh, chase for a for a playoff spot, which right now they're in a pretty good position to get. Uh, and in the National League, a pitcher who's outperforming expectations, and is he a factor or a fluke? Uh, Taylor Youngman, has, who's one of those rookie pitchers, there's nothing I could see in his minor league numbers that suggested he could possibly be as good as he's been. Uh, and uh, maybe he'll just keep it up, but I got to think once teams get a, a book on him, he's not a. He wasn't a strikeout pitcher. He wasn't a particularly good whip pitcher uh, in the minor leagues, at least not this year. So where that came from, I don't know. Uh, uh, fluke wise, as far as facts, I, I think Zach Greinke is good and getting better. Uh, it's if they keep him on that team, look out. It's having Greinke and and. Kershaw's a one-two punch. Look out! That's that's a. It's like having Drysdale and Kofax. It really is. Uh, so, Lore Michaels, facts or flukes in the American League? The hitters Carlos Santana and Carlos Sanchez, both flukes. Uh, look for some solid performance. The National League hitter uh, Matt Kemp is a fluke, and Jed Jorko, factor or fluke? I didn't quite get that. Um, I, I I think they're they're I think they're they're flukes. I think I I'm, I'm hoping they pick it up and really do well this second half. I think they can.
On the pitching side in the American League, Scott Kazmir's fine performance here to date. Lorne Michaels warns could be a fluke. He could be in for a bad adjustment in Houston. Irvin Santana, who didn't pitch at all in the first half, that's got to be kind of fluky and could have a good second half. And finally in the National League, Taylor Youngman, a good performance that could be a fluke. But Zach Greinke's for real, and boy, isn't he ever. What a tremendous pitcher Zach Greinke's turning out to be. Uh, Lore, thanks a million for doing this. Uh, tell us where listeners can read and hear more from Lore Michaels. Uh, you can read me on mastersball.com every ooh, almost every day, three times a week, at, uh, recommending fantasy score picks from the USA Today's daily game. I write Bed Goes Up on, what day is that? Saturdays, that publishes Hot Page. There's a brand new Hot Page out uh, today uh, uh, where I'm, I'm talking about uh, trade, the branded Finnegan and the, uh, some of the trade byproduct. Uh, and then I'm also, as we get near football season, writing about mock drafts there. And then every Saturday at the USA Today on their fantasy page, I, I write, try to write something of fun and interest to the universe. Is that in the uh, newspaper edition or just online? Uh, I, it's always online, sometimes in print. All right, Laura, thanks a million for doing this. It's always so much fun to talk to you. It was fun again as I expected it would be. No fluke there. And I guess I'll see you in Phoenix in the fall. You betcha, Patrick. Thanks so much. I, I too, always say uh, doesn't matter whether we're walking down the streets in New York or talking on the phone. I always have a great conversation with you. Thanks, Laura. Laura Michaels, as you heard, writes for MastersBall.com and USA Today. And wherever he's writing, you ought to be reading. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Playing Time, and Frequent Flyers, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south 
for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, our Playing Time Today roster coverage looks at Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson moving to the Mets, Anthony Rendon returning to the Nationals, Aaron Sanchez returning to the Jays' bullpen, and much more. In our Market Watch column, Matt Cederholm looks at potential market inefficiencies with players like Cody Anderson, Jonathan Scope, Stephen Piscotti, and many more. And our Facts and Flukes performance validation analysis looks at performances by Nathan Eovaldi, Adam Eaton, Nick Martinez, and many others. We also provide daily matchups reports and a daily fantasy dashboard. There's team coverage and minor league scouting. And of course, we have the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league. And it's only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, baseballhq.com. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentaries. Coming up, we have our playing time and frequent flyers comments. And leading off, it's the minor league minute. And here with a report on 18-year-old Red Sox third-base prospect Raphael Devers is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Boston Red Sox' Raphael Devers quickly established himself as one of the best young prospects in the game. The 18-year-old Devers signed for $1.5 million as an international free agent in 2013 and has done nothing but hit since turning pro. Devers hit 337 in the Dominican Summer League and then 312 in a brief stint in the Gulf Coast League. Devers is a pure hitter who uses a sweet left-handed stroke to shoot line drives to all fields. He stays on the ball well and makes consistent hard contact. At times, he can be overly aggressive at the plate, but his contact ability and bat speed allow him to get away with it. Defensively, Devers moves well with decent hands and a plus arm, but he's raw at third base and has spent a fair amount of time at DH for low A Greenville, and a move to first base or left field is possible down the road. Defensive limitations are not likely to slow Devers' development, and scouts see him as a middle-of-the-order run producer. On the year, Devers is hitting 296 with 22 doubles and 19 home runs and 335 at-bats, and that's as an 18-year-old. Long-term, Rafael Devers makes an excellent target for those in long-term keeper formats and has the potential to be a future offensive stud. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes daily call-ups coverage featuring Cleveland first baseman Jesus Aguilar, Mets outfielder Michael Conforto, Philadelphia right-handed starting pitcher Aaron Nola, and many others. And we have the watch list report, a quick hit look at minor leaguers on the verge of call-up because of changes on the big league roster, their own performance, or both. Many players in the watch list are not top-level prospects, but they could provide short-term fantasy value in the right situation. In the latest edition, we have part two of Alec Dopp's pre-trade prospect analysis with players like Tyler Glasnow, Hiram Burgos, Jose Ramirez, and others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or less. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at using the Casimir and Cueto trades to find playing time in Oakland and Cincinnati. The early trade deadline dominoes are beginning to fall, as we've already seen two top pitchers, Johnny Cueto and Scott Casimir, dealt to the Royals and Astros, respectively. As always with these big deals, the initial reactions are to speculate on how each pitcher might fare with his new team, especially in Cueto's case when he's switching leagues. We see plenty of analysis looking at the changes in home ballpark, defense, bullpen, opposition, etc., and how that will change outlooks for the Aces the rest of the way. What sometimes gets lost in the shuffle, however, is who will backfill that ace starter from that pitcher's former team. Who takes Cueto and Casimir's spots? These are the types of guys that are probably available in your free agent pool and can make a difference down the stretch. In Oakland, it's probably Drew Pomeranz getting the call in Casimir's place. Pomeranz has a league average 377 ERA this year out of the bullpen, but remember he posted a 235 ERA last season with a reasonable 357 expected ERA and 8.3 strikeouts per nine. Pomeranz hit a rough patch in May this year, but he's been striking out over a batter per inning since Memorial Day. He probably won't be an impact arm down the stretch, but he will start games and will be cheap on the waiver wire in AL-only leagues for pitching-starved owners. In Cincinnati, our own Brian Rudd took a look at the Reds' rotation in advance of the Cueto trade earlier this week in his Playing Time Tomorrow piece on BaseballHQ.com. Rudd noted that in addition to Cueto, Mike Leake is also likely to go, so there will be opportunities in Cincinnati, probably for Tony Singrani first, and maybe prospect Robert Stevenson. Singrani was called up to make a doubleheader spot start on July 22nd, and he's been getting stretched out in AAA after starting the year in the bullpen. Singrani posts some intriguing strikeout upside, and remember, he's only two years removed from that 2.92 ERA he put up in his rookie season of 2013. Stevenson was ranked the Reds' top prospect by BaseballHQ.com entering this season, and he's held his own at AAA since being called up to Louisville in early July. Like with most prospects, Stevenson will encounter some bumps in the road at the MLB level, but it wouldn't be surprising to see him get a shot down the stretch as Cincinnati waves the flag on 2015. So remember in these deadline trades, not only where the headliner guys like Cueto and Casimir are going, but what the playing time ramifications are for their former clubs. Again, these are the guys that are likely available in your leagues right now, and they can help boost your team down the stretch. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast every Tuesday. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Danny Duffy, Joe Ross, and JT Rail Muto, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Boy, the Royals sure made a big splash last Sunday when they traded pitchers Brandon Finnegan, Cody Reed, and John Lamb to Cincinnati for ace Johnny Cueto. This week's edition for Good Flyers, we'll look at three more players, including another Royals pitcher who could make a big splash in your league. Although on the surface day, Duffy's statistics this season are unremarkable, a 4-4 record with a 4.03 ERA and 1.41 whip through 14 starts, Duffy is 2-0 through four starts in July, with a 1.37 ERA and a .99 whip. In fact, if we throw out Duffy's disastrous month of May, where he posted a 13.03 ERA in three starts before his trip to the disabled list with a shoulder injury, Duffy's adjusted ERA for the season would be 2.68 rather than 4.03. However, keep in mind that Danny Duffy, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are flying under the radar in your league. Duffy's strand rate of 84% over the past 31 days, combined with his projected XERA of 4.34 for the balance of the season, indicates that Duffy's recent production is probably unsustainable over the long term. Even so, he's worth a flyer. Grab him now if he's available. Next, let's head to the nation's capital, where 22-year-old Nationals pitcher Joe Ross, the younger brother of Padres pitcher Tyson Ross, has raised a few eyebrows and expectations in Washington. You may remember Joe Ross, a former first-round selection in 2011, as part of Washington's return in the three-team deal that sent Steven Sousa to Tampa last December. Since his Major League debut on June 6th, Joe Ross has struck out 34 batters in 32 innings while posting a 3.03 ERA with a .95 whip through five starts. 11 of those 34 strikeouts came in a dazzling seven-inning performance against the Pirates last month. Although it's only a very small sample size, Ross has posted elite stats through his first five games, allowing three runs or less at each start. A closer look shows us 9.4 DOM, 11.3 command, and .83 control ratios are extremely impressive, but should not be considered as benchmarks for future performance. Keep in mind that Ross has thrown just over 68% of his pitches for strikes, yet only walked three batters total through his first five starts. He's worth a flyer, though. Finally, our last frequent flyer takes us to Miami, where Marlins rookie catcher JT Riomuto, who batted 316 with three home runs in June and 290 with one home run in July, also leads all major league catchers in stolen bases. What if I told you that Riomuto has more home runs and just as many stolen bases as Boston shortstop Xander Bogarts at this point in the season? Would you believe me? It's true. Not to mention, Riamuto has just as many home runs and stolen bases as Cubs shortstop Starlin Castro, plus a better batting average. To be fair, Riamuto is tied with Russell Martin for the Major League lead in steals among catchers. Interestingly enough, both Riamuto and Martin are also batting .259 on the season. The point is that most owners, even in daily leagues, would likely select players like Xander Bogarts and Starlin Castro much higher in drafts. Maybe it's time to start taking Riamuto's production seriously. And if you want your team to be taken seriously, consider adding Danny Duffy, Joe Ross, 
and JT Riamuto, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 46 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout edition of the show. It was the Fantasy Baseball Zen Master, Lore Michaels. It's always great fun to talk with Lore, a very smart and capable fantasy player, and a great guy to call a friend. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our minor league minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please feel free to send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.